I am here with Kane, who's the founder of Synthetics and sort of a big player in DeFi. Um, Kane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to see you. Maybe we can start off by you giving a little bit of context on how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole and what the hell the last few years have been like for you. Yeah, um, it was actually funny. I, I found something. Um, so I was in online retail um, before crypto. Um, and I found something I've like, I've been on so many podcasts where I'm like, we launched this thing with like, um, Coinbase pay or, or whatever it was, uh, back in like 2012, where like, you know, people still thought Bitcoin was going to be this payment mechanism and that like no one used it. Right. And, um, and you know, it was like this thing that we tried and it didn't really work. And it was kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. Um, but, um, I ended up meeting some of the people who were in the crypto space back then who were like trying to like launch crypto payments. Um, a guy named Asher Tan who went out to build like a big wallet and some of the other like you know, ecosystem participants. But I actually found something um, like maybe a month ago. I don't know why I was searching my iMessages for Bitcoin and I found a message from Kieran, my little brother, who was like, oh my God, someone actually paid with Bitcoin. So someone actually paid with Bitcoin at some point in 2012 uh, for like a, you know, some audio interface or something like that. He didn't say how much it was or how many Bitcoin it was or whatever. Right? Like the average basket size on our site was probably like $500 to $1,000. So it was probably like three or four BTC, I'm guessing, right? That someone paid for stuff with. Um, and uh, we have no idea where it is. It's like in some Coinbase account somewhere that we don't know how to access or, or whatever. So there's like five, you know, talking about dead Bitcoin, there's like five Bitcoin somewhere that like someone paid for some uh, some music gear and we don't know where it is. I'm sure that person looks back on that moment and is like, damn, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, did not exactly. need to be buying that in Bitcoin. 100%. Yeah. Ended up costing them, you know, like $100,000 or something. That is so funny. Um, so that sent you down. Is that was that your first exposure to crypto? No, like you know, I, I like had was kind of aware of it, I guess, um, and you know, had dabbled in like Bitcoin mining and stuff. Like I, you know, I was on um, Slashdot, um, the, the old like tech forum, um, and so I remember reading the Bitcoin. Um, you know, there was like a, a big thread, like a bunch of people. That was like the first time that they really came across it. It was like some upgrade to the software or something. Um, and I like tried to set up CG Miner, couldn't set it up, couldn't get it working. It was like running on my home theater PC. It just wasn't a thing. Um, and it, it probably, like the thing that actually got me into crypto, I would say is when I, I was building a payment gateway after shutting down the online retail business, I was building a payment gateway. And um, I realized that like, there was this very adversarial relationship with the banks and crypto. I hadn't been really across it. And I was talking to, to you know, some friends of mine who were in the crypto space and they're like, oh yeah, we just kind of banked. It's really hard. Um, and we were coming from a much more traditional space. And so we had no issues. You know, we had this like very wealthy guy that's part of the um, Murdoch family that was like the, you know, lead investor in this project and like kind of, you know, helped, was the one who was kind of pushing along. And he could get bank accounts wherever he wanted. And so like we had like multiple bank accounts from multiple different places. Um, and these guys were like, we really need like to be able to access bank accounts. They were doing crazy stuff, like sending people in with like, you know, an envelope with cash in it, like with the account number written on it that they would like give them. It was it was just insane to get money into um, the ecosystem at the time. And so we were like, oh, well, you can use our payment gateway. And so then we ended up launching, um, I think it was like 2015 or 2016, we ended up launching this payment gateway which allowed people to buy Bitcoin basically. Um, and that was where I really went down the rabbit hole. I was like, okay, like there's a lot of people, you know, we were doing, like at first, you know, tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands at the peak in 2017, I think we we're doing like tens of millions of dollars of transactions a month. It was pretty crazy. So I was like, all right, there's something here. Um, and that kind of led me really to go deeper into, you know, specifically Ethereum. Mm. And then from there, how did you get to synthetics? Well, again, you know, I was in payments and online retail, right? And like, you know, I still think that there was this sense of like cryptos for payments. Right. Like that was mm. that was my my reading of the Bitcoin white paper was, you know, cryptos for payments. Right. It's a it's a peer to peer electronic cash system. Right. Like the idea was payments. It wasn't, you know, digital gold or whatever crazy narrative we're, we're going with, you know, at the moment. <laughs> and so I was like, OK, well, you know, Bitcoin clearly didn't work. Right. You know, and I had like 
firsthand knowledge, right? And so I thought that no one had ever used Bitcoin to pay for anything on our website. Turns out they had one person did, right? Um, but, you know, or maybe more, honestly, like I, it says like someone actually did this, right? So it shows that I obviously had forgotten what was going on. So maybe there's like 50 people who paid with Bitcoin, who knows? <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, I had this kind of firsthand knowledge of like, no, this is not a thing. Like people don't use Bitcoin um, to pay for things for a whole bunch of reasons, volatility, et cetera. Um, and stable coins, I guess, were... Um, like, you know, BitShares was the only real example, I suppose, other than uh, Tether, right? You know, but like the idea of like a decentralized stable coin um, was around. Maker hadn't launched yet. Um, and I was like, I think there's a way to do this differently, right? Like, you know, I think if we make a payment system where people pay to transact, right? Um, you know, instead of uh, sending money around for free, you actually pay to transact, right? Um, there's a fee every time you transfer funds that that could pay for this payment network. It could kind of support itself and you could have um, sort of a, you know, uh, algorithmic stable coin that's based on transaction fees, essentially. And that was Haven. That was the original idea for Haven. Um, it turns out there's a whole bunch of things that are wrong with that idea. Um, and so, you know, eventually we pivoted away from that. But it seemed like a good idea at the time, right? And it allowed us to raise some money and, and kind of get some momentum into the space. What was that pivot like? I mean, how many pivots did you do from there to get to what synthetics is now? Uh, it was probably that one big pivot, I think, um, from, you know, uh, USD denominated stablecoin payment network to uh, like a, an exchange like um, system. That said, in the white paper, we had actually contemplated the idea of like multiple currency stablecoins. Um, but the, you know, it was basically just using different oracles, right? It wasn't allowing them necessarily to be like traded between them. And certainly we hadn't thought about what the implications of allowing multiple, you know, currencies, multiple stable coins to dominate in different currencies, um, you know, would look like to actually enable that to work. Because when we actually said, let's do this, let's pivot to that. It took like six months to figure out how to do it. It was, it was actually a nightmarish problem. It was funny. I was actually, I met with one of the engineers who helped us with that yesterday. And he still remembers it. Like five years later, he's like, that was one of the worst ideation <laughs> processes I've ever been through. Like I, there was one day where there, I think there were about 10 of us sitting in this tiny little room. And it was, it was one of those like co-working space offices where uh, they have just whiteboards around the entire wall, right? And I remember we sat there for like five hours and we started on one wall and we're writing out all these things and like coming up with the different options of like baskets of currencies, how it's going to be back. And we just like went from wall to wall to wall to wall to wall, got all the way back around and we're like, it can't work. And then we're like, all right, let's <laughs> take a break, guys. <clears throat> it's like that so. meme of like Charlie from It's Always Sunny with like yeah. all of the, you know what I'm it talking was I, I'm sure someone has a photo of it. It was like just crazy scrolls of madness. And then we got to the end and we're like, no, it doesn't work. And we're like, okay, cool. <laughs> let's just, let's go and sleep or something. Solid, solid. Yeah. I mean, on that note, like, I'm very curious. I think right now feels like a moment where a lot of companies are like questioning whether or not what they originally designed in these like highly complex protocols even works. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how you think about this idea of like, pivoting or even understanding like, okay, is what we design not working yeah. because crypto adoption just sucks? Is it not working because it's a bad idea? I think oftentimes, um, I don't want to make accusations, but I do think that a lot of teams sort of uh, hide behind this idea that like, oh, crypto adoption just isn't there. And so we just can't make this, this work. And so I'm Ooh. curious how you think about that in general and like validating concepts in a world where we struggle with adoption? Well, I think, you know, I can, I can kind of give this specific case of Haven, right? Like what was it that sort of indicated to us that this was never going to be a thing, right? This just was not going to work. And um, what it was, was charging fees as part of, you know, so we built a non-standard ERC-20, right? Um, as if ERC-20s were not uh, problematic enough, right? We made it worse. And so we were like, okay, um, when you set and you know when we were doing this there were no contracts on mainnet doing anything really right so like we didn't have best practices of like how this was going to work what the implications would be or whatever and so we're like okay so you got all these things and you know i remember there was like some example of like either delta or something um where there was an expectation when you sent in stable coins built into their system that the amount that was sent would be the amount that was that would arrive right? Like just obviously, like it's just such a, you know, kind of 
obvious thing to expect. And in our case, it wouldn't because we would go, hey, we're sending you 100 of this thing and only 99.8 are going to arrive, right? And they were just like, no, we're not like, sorry, this is just not a thing. We're not touching this. And so we're like, okay, well, the one place where you could actually use this to buy things says like we won't use it, right? And so we just had to like figure out that that was not a thing. And so if you couldn't charge fees, you know, I, I remember there were, there were a whole bunch of objections to Haven. Like one of them was like, people would just fork away the fees, right? No one's ever forked away fees. Like they forked for other reasons, but they don't fork away fees really. Um, you know, there's not many good examples of that. But there were a lot of concerns, but this was like a very practical thing that like people wouldn't integrate it. And so we're like, okay, we can't charge fees on transfer. Like what could we do? And we, you know, considered things like having inflation and, you know, it all kind of ends up in the same sort of, place where people have an expectation that a certain amount of tokens leaves a wallet and a certain amount of tokens gets the wallet. And if you break that, you have problems, right? And, you know, then later, obviously, with a lot of algo stable coins, it was like rebasing. And so there were problems with like, you have a certain amount of tokens in your wallet and you expect that that will stay the same. And then it doesn't, it changes. And so, you know, a lot of AMM pools were like, what are you people doing? Like, this is madness, right? Um, so I think we just got to a point where we're like, this is not a like it may be a viable in principle strategy but it's not viable in practice to charge fees on transfer okay and so if you can't charge fees on transfer the whole thing falls apart like there's really no way to charge fees and so then you need to work out something else so what we said is okay let's charge fees when someone exchanges all right so we'll, we'll take the fees when someone exchanges and so then what you get is let's say, you know, even if you are interacting with an AMM pool, there isn't an expectation that, you know, one synthetic Bitcoin is going to end up with the same number of synthetic ETH at the end of the transaction because they're different things, right? You're swapping between things. So, so then it became less of a problem. It was just the exchange rate between to two tokens. Um, and that was something that, you know, it was just off, like, you know, exchange rates between tokens were something that the, you know, most contracts contemplated. And so it was fine. And so then we were able to do that. Um, so I think my guess is there are probably a lot of projects out there that are kind of looking at some of the practical implications of these theoretical constructs that they, they you know, um, sold to the market, right? And going, oh, actually, yeah, that's, uh, you know, an implication we didn't expect, right? And if you have those and there's no way around it, you really need to start, you know, getting out your, your pivot cards and, and working out what you're going to do, right? Um, if you're doing something which works as expected and does the thing that you said it would do and there's no you know dire implications of any of the design choices you made or whatever and no one's using it it's kind of you know two components of that like one maybe it's dumb right like and the balance of probabilities are probably dumb right like probably the market just doesn't want it, right? Like on some level, if you go out and build something, you're like, we think the market will want this. And then you build it and no one wants it. Like probably there was a reason why no one built it before, right? Or, you know, oftentimes you even go and you look and you're like, oh, actually if someone did build this before and they still didn't want it and they still don't want it now. Okay, so what do we do? What have we learned? You know, how do we find something that people would want? And, and you pivot that way. Um, I think there are definitely cases where, like people are building things and no one's using it. And it is because there just aren't enough users. Like if you're building for the wrong type of user, right? If you're building something for like the dumbest end user you can imagine, like those people got wrecked, they're already gone, right? So if you're like, I'm building something for like, you know, the like person who just has no idea about crypto but for some reason wants to use it, um, you know, yes, there are none of those users around. And so maybe it's possible that your thing is a brilliant idea for those users, but that you just can't connect those two. Um, you really need to be, I think the, the thing that I've been, I've been saying, I've got, um, I've got this new thing that I'm working on. And one of the guys that's working on it with me, I've been, I've been telling him every day, like, you really need to question your assumptions, right? Like you need a bunch of assumptions to go and do something. And the key thing is to just question those assumptions all the time. Not every assumption every day, because you couldn't live like that, but like enough assumptions at different times where, you know, again, like, is it a dumb idea to charge fees on transfer? Like that was an assumption, right? And if you never question that, you just keep doing it and you're like running into a brick wall and you're like, no, 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 this, I'm not wrong. The market's wrong. Like this is the right thing to do. And eventually people will come around to it, right? And it's like, no, 
Like that was a dumb assumption and it's okay. Like it's okay to make dumb assumptions. And so you just move on and you do something else, right? And so I think that being open to your prior assumptions before you did anything being wrong and the likelihood of that being fairly high um, will allow you to kind of see through the, the, the fog a little bit and, and find your way. Um, but again, I, I do think, you know, there's some really good examples of things that were obviously good in a market that was utterly terrible, like way worse than this. Uniswap is the best example, right? Like Uniswap probably launched at like the worst possible time, right, in the market. And it got tons of adoption because it was a really good thing that made a lot of sense. You know, it took a little while. Like it didn't just like immediately blow up, right? Like there were there was a period where people were skeptical about whether Uniswap was even useful, right? There were definitely people out there who were like, oh, I don't think this is a real thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then eventually it got enough momentum and people started using it, you know, but it took a little while. It took maybe, I don't know, three or six months before it was like, oh, wow, this thing really works. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, like, it, you know, of course, it sounds like Haven was not decentralized at that time and governance was not a thing that was happening. But like in the context of all of this, you know, I think testing assumptions requires shipping and seeing how the market reacts to some degree. And there's definitely a weird dynamic between um, decentralized governance and like a lack of flexibility. And so I'm curious how you think about that ability to like pivot and change approach in the context of this weird landscape that we've built where like teams are kind of decentralizing earlier than maybe they should and maybe giving up some flexibility there. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I think bear markets are nice because so few people care what you do, right? Like the majority of people have given up hope. And, you know, like if you went back and looked at like your Discord, like 90% of those Discord people that were there 18 months ago are gone, right? And so you're kind of left with people who are implicitly more bought in and engaged and more open you know, open-minded, like open to like trying new things, right? And that's exactly what happened with Haven. The people who were left when we turned up, and yes, you know, at the time Haven was a foundation, right? So it was an open source software foundation that was run by a group of people. Um, it was absolutely centralized, right? Like that was that was you know, the intent behind it. But it's not like we just did things and didn't consult with the community. It was a group of people, you know, there was some people that were in a room doing some stuff. And then there were a whole bunch of people that were in discord that were, you know, sort of thinking about this problem. Right. And when I came and proposed this pivot, um, and I think even the pivot to synthetics was not necessarily the thing that worked, right. It was the pivot to an inflationary token model, which like that was controversial right at the time it wasn't like that was just like a slam dunk everyone's like oh yeah of course like just jack the token up no problem let's see how that works right there were a lot of people that were skeptical and concerned about it but the majority of them just didn't care like even you know we went around i think it was um devcon 4 and you know i remember meeting with some of the people who were like big holders of the token and they were kind of like yeah whatever like you know do what you want. I don't care. Like everyone's wrecked. Like they're, you know, they're wrecked. The market's wrecked. They're just like, there's an element of like, sure, you know? And so I do think that for a project that is still, you know, has a lot of momentum in terms of like engineering effort and they're like still really trying things. I would say my advice would be like, don't be afraid to do crazy shit, right? Like people will absolutely be open to, that much more so than you might imagine, right? Like people are not, the people who are left in crypto today are not cautious people, right? They are very open to crazy stuff, right? <clears throat> so I, I think like, you know, you, the, the range of possibilities of what you can do as a project, even with decentralized governance, it is not hard to convince a bunch of DGENs to try something crazy. Like, don't be afraid to, like, you know, come up with a crazy pivot and and throw it out to the community and see what they say. Do you think that's why, I mean, I guess in my head, there's an assumption that, like, bear markets tend to create much more interesting products, which may or may not be true. So I guess, first of all, do you think that's true? And second, I wonder if it's that's correlated to the, like, just fuck around and find out energy of a bear market. I think it's it's true in the sense that, like, whatever... Um, so I think it's true for a number of reasons. One, 
the you know in a bull market it's like copy everyone as quickly as you can right mm-hmm. um you know and and there's so many clones and like me too things and you know like i uh, you know just there's a lot of that stuff right that's happening um and so you know you end up with like 58 amms right with like you know slightly different features or whatever like 50 different lending markets and you know someone sees compound they're like oh i can do compound with this tweak right um, you know, you end up with way too many stable points. Um, and so I think that like, that is just a feature of bull markets. So people are rushing as fast as they can to try and, you know, put out a bucket from this money that's raining from the sky. Right. And, you know, it's easier to convince an investor to give you money for a new algo stable coin than it is for some like novel idea. Like by the time you've finished explaining it to them, they're distracted, they're running off to something else. Right. And so, you know, okay, fine you're left at the end of a bull market with a bunch of people who hopefully still have some money left in the bucket. Right. And are realizing that their, you know, um, kind of, you know, 58 AMM design or, you know, lending marketplace or whatever is like not going to, you know, be sufficiently differentiated to, for anyone to care about it, go do something else, like figure something else out, right. Pivot and, and do something else. Be like, Oh, actually it turns out we don't need 85 lending markets. Let's go and do something else. And so, you know, when you look at what the something else is, you also have this kind of, um, I guess, rubble that's just littering the landscape, right? All of these things were built, some of which were good, most of which no one was paying attention to, especially if it was like not, you know, not an obvious thing, right? Um, and you end up with like a bunch of things. And, you know, I've been finding this even recently where I've got specific things that I'm trying to solve in this new, um, like, project that I'm building within the synthetics ecosystem and kind of everywhere I look, someone solved that problem. Like someone sold someone in this crazy, you know, um, uh, bull run saw that problem and decided to try and solve it. And I never heard about them. Right. But then, you know, if they're still there and it still makes sense, they're doing it. And so, you know, I'm finding a bunch of tools that are super useful for the thing that I'm trying to build for the specific problem, because a lot of people had those problems, but they were just not the obvious thing to do. Um, and so I think that out of that, you have a whole bunch of people that will, you know, realize that this, let's call it an account abstraction tool or whatever is super useful. Right. And that they want to improve the UX of their product that already has some product market fit and is kind of working, but has some friction. Right. And so out of the rubble, people find this little, you know, gem of a project, right? And they're like, wow, this is super useful. And then, you know, people start using it, get some momentum. And then out of the next bull market, that thing becomes a huge thing, right? Um, and, you know, there's things like one inch where it was like, oh, an aggregator, like, no, they couldn't even raise money, right? They were funded by like grants from synthetics during the bear market, right? Like no one would give those guys money. And then in the bull market, you know, they kind of ran up and they were able to raise some money. But, um, you know, the the really good stuff oftentimes is, is ignored for a while until, you know, it really demonstrates utility. That is kind of funny because it's almost like we go from just like an insane amount of hype for random projects in a bull. And then in a bear, you almost have to like, and I think this is probably especially true for people who came in in the bowl and then are sort of staying in the bear. Like you almost have to develop your own opinion about what you think is actually valuable because crypto Twitter is is not hyping up projects like it used to. Um, yeah. And it feels like it's it's almost like up to each individual to figure out what what's actually interesting and exciting, whether it's in like DeFi or consumer infrastructure or wherever. Um Definitely feels. Like I would there's, argue there's that that skill shift. set would have probably held you pretty well in the bull market as well if you thought to true. develop it, right? You know, like you know, it seems like you can just kind of follow the crowd, right, in the bull market, and, yeah. and you kind of can if you know your only kind of metrics number go up, right? Um, but in terms of like what's actually useful, you know, um, Aptos, I don't know, probably not, right? Um, <laughs> you know, whatever crazy thing people were shilling in the in the bull market, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious more broadly, like when, when we think about what it looks like to actually like maintain conviction in a bear, um, I'm curious what that looks like for you, because it definitely feels like crypto Twitter is kind of boring right now, except for, I don't know, there are some things happening and and there's definitely like crypto Twitter drama, which can be fun to follow, but the energy is quite different. And so I'm curious how you think about that. So... 
I, you know, someone mentioned uh, how boring crypto Twitter has been recently, um, you know, a few days ago, however it was. But here, like this, and just as we started talking earlier in, in the podcast, you you kind of threw that question out to me and it's been percolating in the back of my head. And I feel like here's the reason why crypto Twitter is better in a bear market. Yes, it's more boring, but we're all paying attention to the same things at the same time. In a bull market, it really fragments, right? Like there's so much stuff going on that people are paying attention to different little pockets and stuff's going on. And so like I can meet someone in crypto and, and be like, hey, what about this thing? And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about, right? Because um, they're just in a different little niche, you know, like we saw that with NFTs, where there was a whole NFT thing where like the average NFT person would come up to me and be like, what do you think about ladies? And I'm like, what are you, t-? you know, like, but now, you know, and like that happened, right? People were like, oh, like I, I remember, you know, one of my close friends being like, oh my God, I went to this like crazy um, event for this, you know, new thing called Miladies. And I was like, oh, sure, whatever. And I just went back to what I was doing because just so much stuff going on that you can't. And so I think that the noise floor drops, right? And most of the people are gone. And the people who are left are all kind of part of this same club, right? And this happened in 2019. Like, Everyone in crypto who was in crypto knew about one inch. Like, you know, it was a whole, like there was Dexag um, and there was one inch and there were a couple of other aggregators and they were in this like life and death battle, like this pitch battle. They hated each other, right? And they were like trolling each other constantly. And, like everyone knew about that drama. We were all watching this thing, right? We're all in like this one DeFi Telegram channel and it was hilarious, right? Um, and, you know, I remember being a moderator and I had to like ban Sergey like three times from the chat because he was trolling Scott Lewis so hard and Scott Lewis would get so angry and he was a mod but he didn't want to ban him because he was like it's not fair as a mod to like ban this guy but they would just come in and they were just absolute assholes to everyone and it was hilarious right but like we all knew about this it was all like this little club that we were in right and so I think you end up and this is kind of feels like what what's forming now where like if you were to talk to someone who's still on crypto Twitter the topic of the day everyone knows so we all have this shared context where we feel a sense of like oh we're all in this together again right we're not all running off in different directions and so i think that that out of that there's a thing that kind of forms where you know even obviously you know crypto twitter is much bigger today than it was back in 2019 but like out of that you know you kind of form this like bond with the people who are still here where like you all have the same shared dumb memes and stories and stuff and you know you come out of that and that kind of you know sees you through the next cycle it definitely feels like high school in a way in a good way sometimes yeah like you know it's but like (laughs) but you all know the same in jokes and the same you know the same like the same stuff right like you know someone said this crazy thing and everyone knows about it right because it's just not as much going on and so again i think that creates a sense of like camaraderie and and you know cohesiveness in the ecosystem even if you're disagreeing with people you still know what we're all disagreeing about right yeah totally i feel like to me that's like there are like several layers of like the the weird shift that's happening in a bear market and what that looks like on crypto twitter that to me is like the middle layer where it's like the the social sort of implications i'm curious a layer below that when you think about like your own individual conviction that's the other Mm. element where it's like easy to watch the drama back and forth the the layer below is like why are we doing what we're why doing why are we and, doing this yeah, yeah why, what the why fuck's are we going watching on the drama? yeah 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 so yeah. i'm curious how you think about that yeah so it it feels to me and i can really only speak only speak to my my personal experience right but it feels to me like as you go through a cycle um, especially in the bull market, it can be really frustrating to just watch the level of like nonsense, right? And and so someone someone who had conviction in the bear market who was like, okay, like I think that this stuff is going to work, right? And so you go go back to like a lot of the DeFi people were like, holy shit, like we have contracts on Ethereum, they work, they're connected to each other. We've got, you know, arbitrage that's going on, you know, across all of these different contracts and they're, they're working. We have composability, like all of this stuff that was very theoretical became real in like 2018 and 2019. And so <clears throat> we, 
I think, developed that conviction that like, this is real. Like we had a belief, but then we got conviction that like, this is real, right? And then the rest of the world kind of um, realized it. And then, you know, the rest of the world was like, well, actually what I'm gonna do is deploy a fork of that on BSC, right? Um, you know, and you're like, wait, what, sorry, what's happening? Like, and then like all of a sudden there's all this crazy and you're just like, oh man, like this is not what I signed up for. And then it fades back down and it, and it kind of comes back down into a bear market again. And a lot of that stuff disappears because it was, you know, just froth from the bear, the bull markets. And I think you then need to like look around and be like, okay, you know, we didn't necessarily get it right. We got some things wrong, right? What were the things that we got wrong? And what do we do now to position ourselves so that, you know, in the next cycle, things are going to work. And for me, that's been the last, like, three months, really, like three to six months of thinking about it. And I've come to a pretty strong conclusion of what I think is missing, right? And I think for the the majority of it is, is just UX issues, right? I think that um, we even, like, even through this whole cycle, really haven't been able to compete with centralized services, right? And so when you get a whole bunch of new people pouring in, the easiest way that they can be onboarded is the way that they'll likely be onboarded, right? And so, you know, for a big part of the cycle, that was FTX, right? That was the easiest way to onboard someone, right? Turns out that was not a great way to onboard new users, right? Um, and so it's beholden on us to go, okay, we have all this cool stuff, right? But it's really fucking hard to use. And now we have even cooler stuff, but it's even harder to use because it's trapped on Arbitrum and Optimism and, you know, base maybe will bridge that gap a little bit for us, you know, because Coinbase obviously can pour users at something. But like, we have all this really cool stuff, um, even cooler than we had in 2019, because now we've got, you know, fast networks to, to build stuff that you know, requires um, fast execution. Okay, cool. Um, so then what do we do? Like people still, you know, people still didn't really use it. It's really cool, but it didn't really you know, get that critical mass necessarily, right? Um, and I think the answer is that we don't really have like user experience parity with centralized services. We've always had this weird thing going on in crypto where like the majority of people are using centralized services in this ostensibly decentralized environment. Like the whole point is building centralized things and we just build, wrap these layers of centralization on it and people get wrecked because of it. It's like kind of insane. But at some point you have to look at that and be like, this is a thing we're not going to be able to overcome. Like people are not going to suddenly wake up and, and care about decentralization as they're pouring in the door, screaming, you know, with their hair on fire, right? They're not going to like stop and just like take it and be like, wait a second, this thing feels a bit sketchy, this like centralized service, right? Like that's, that's not going to happen. And as much as we, you know, hope that it will, like we end up with more people who do care about decentralization who are left at the end of a cycle, but it's not enough and it won't do anything when the new people start pouring back in again. And so my sense is that like really, and it's not like this is a you know, crazy you know, idea, right? That no one's ever thought of, but I really strongly believe that absent feature parity in terms of the user experience and onboarding, that people are just not going to use these services. You know, Even if we get better, like that's the key thing that's missing. It's actually not even the services themselves, it's the onboarding process and, and you know how do you get them there. And so I guess probably what's happened for me, my conviction is like people will use these services, we just need to let them use them, right? And mm -hmm. building them and hoping that they will care about decentralization has not worked. So we gotta try something else. Let's try to meet them where they live, you know, and just get to that same level of onboarding uh, ease as say Binance has, right? Um, and that's not easy and it's going to require trade-offs, but if you can do it, then when people turn up and they, you know, there's, they, they go through the big crypto door and there's all these other doors and one's Binance and one is, you know, synthetics, you know, some synthetics ecosystem project, right? You want the doors to be the same size. You don't want one to be this like tiny little you know, mouse hole, they've got to squeeze themselves <laughs> through, you know, and Binance is this escalator that, you know, just takes them off a cliff and then they just, you know, slowly fall over, right? Like you need to make sure that when they get there, that those things are equal. Mm. Yeah. So I guess just to like follow up on that, do you think that 
if onboarding was like optimal, like it was as easy to, you know, start using synthetics on optimism as it was for people to like use Binance or FTX or whatever. Do you think that we would see like significantly more adoption? Like, have we built enough? And it sounds like you're applying that, but I want to ask it explicitly. Have we built enough where it's actually appealing for people if we reduce friction? So I think we got to a point at some point in the last two or three years, right, where the decentralized services were at close enough to feature parity with centralized services. Like mm. we, we hit that point at some point, right, where, um, you know, like Uniswap, right, is as good as a spot exchange, right? It's got trade-offs, obviously, but, you know, it's as good, right? And in some ways, it's much better. The permissionless nature means it's faster, right? And faster mm -hmm. in a bull market is an incredible advantage. And so I think that's why Uniswap was so effective um, and why people were willing to go through the onboarding friction, not of Uniswap, but of like Ethereum, creating a wallet, MetaMask, all that stuff, right? Because there was a product that was 10x better than, than the alternatives. And so I think that that worked. I think, <laughs> pardon me, I think like lending protocols in terms of like, you know, lending in, in C5 versus lending, you know, there's some challenges there because uh, lending protocols can just, you know, pay Ponzi fake APYs, right? And steal your money. Um, and so that's a hard thing to compete with. Um, but I do think that if, again, the onboarding friction was lower and you're looking at those two things, you would look at the one that's decentralized, that's really clear about what it's doing. And, and I think that enough people would be like, okay, this makes sense to do this thing. Um, but when there's that additional onboarding friction versus just, you know, type in a username and password and you're up Celsius and you can give them all your assets and you know, you're done, right? Um, you know, I think that it's hard to compete with that. I think exchanges, like particularly perps exchanges, we didn't really have the ability earlier in the cycle because we didn't have layer two networks to do some of the stuff and compete from a feature perspective with the database, right? But I think we could actually compete with the database to an extent that the average user is not going to care about the difference. And so I do really think that we passed that inflection point at some point, but we had been so busy building the infrastructure, building you know all of this stuff, um, that the onboarding process was kind of, you know, I say this all the time, right? Like you don't put customers into a leaky funnel, right? I said this for years and years, right? Like people be like, why don't you market synthetics more? And I'm like, because the product market fit for synthetics is staking. And staking is a nightmare and only a bunch of DGENs would be willing to do it. But there's good product market fit for staking, right? There are a ton of DGENs with, you know, who, who are willing to do this thing, great. The average user is not going to be a staker in synthetics, right? Um, but the average user could be a, a trader in synthetics, but we don't have a good trading experience. So going out and advertising and pushing people in this funnel where they're just falling out the other side is not a good idea. But we now finally do have a trading experience that competes with Binance um, and FTX in particular. And it has a really nice additional feature, which is that we don't steal your money, which it turns out is a pretty powerful feature, right? So pretty you know, that, awesome. like, it's a pretty good feature, not stealing people's money, right? So, um, you know, so I think that that, that like, we just, we passed that point and we got to a point where it's like, okay, wow, we need to actually get people to use this thing. And then it's like, okay, we're going to get people to use it. How? Because it's still really hard to get them to use it. Like the actual process of onboarding them is really hard. And, you know, yes, we can educate people. And I think that that will happen over time. Um, but the, the reality is that there are a lot of things we can do to make the onboarding process better. And I think that my, this is my assumption for this cycle, right? Is if we can solve the onboarding problem, right? And, and we already have feature parity in terms of, you know, the infrastructure that we built, we can solve the onboarding problem that we can make it equally likely or even more likely that someone will go to a decentralized service if we do that, right? Now, maybe that assumption will be wrong. And, you know, we go to a bull market, it turns out no one cares. And for some reason, they want to go to Binance no matter what you do. Um, but my assumption right now is that they don't care about Binance. They care about getting on a service as quickly as possible and having the features that they want. And if you make all things equal, the features that they want will be hopefully to not have their money stolen. They will understand that that is a feature that is valuable and they'll use it. They're just not willing to use that if they have to jump through 50 hoops to get to that feature. 
Mm. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, not stealing users' money is definitely a solid uh, value prop. But also yeah. something that I feel like in the last bull market, we kind of conflated as like a benefit of being a user and using decentralized services was this idea of like being involved in governance um, that like, oh, well, not only can you use this protocol, but also you can have a say in how it's run and you don't get that in FTX or Binance or whatever. I don't know that I actually think that that is fully true, especially in, in a context of something like a DeFi protocol where like your users are not necessarily your token holders who are active in governance. And so I'm curious how you think about that in the context of what it looks like to have these like sort of benefits of decentralized services. And if that's even valuable for users or if that's sort of a different domain entirely. So, you know, how do people find out about things, right? Influencers on Twitter. That's, that's kind of how they find out about things. And, you know, what do influencers shill? Some will shill things that are, you know, just generally good, right? Because they like them, you know, Uniswap pre-token, right? The average person who was talking about Uniswap on crypto Twitter had no exposure to Uniswap. Maybe they were an LP, right? Maybe like it kind of benefited them because they're already LPing. And so, you know, more volume would be good for them, right? Um, but that's not, you know, the most direct uh, alignment, financial alignment, right? Um, you know, whereas with a lot of exchanges, you had these referral programs where, you know, the more people they refer, they were getting, you know, fees and kickbacks and rebates and all kinds of things, right? Um, so the alignment was um, much more direct, I guess, right? And so I suppose when when we sort of ask the question of like, how are people going to find out about things in the next cycle, right? Um, you want to make sure that the people who have the potential to expose people to new projects are aligned with them. And so I think that those are like the mavens and, you know, the, the people that are, um, you know, deeply, sometimes deeply researching, sometimes they're just, you know, like shills on Twitter that have somehow accumulated a lot of followers, right, by saying, incendiary things or whatever they're doing right <laughs> i guess that's my playbook as well so i shouldn't probably should not too much but um but like you know you you have the ability for these people uh who are kind of introducing new users to the ecosystem to projects for them to have governance power and exposure to the the project itself right in a way that you know is i would argue significantly better than just a referral program right and so if you, as an influencer, see this new project, new exchange or new lending protocol, and you could hold tokens in it and govern it and help to like drive it, that, that total buy-in that you have is going to make your conviction that this is a good thing for you to be talking about you know, much higher. And so I think that that is an advantage that we have. Um, but all, and again, this comes back to this assumption, right? Of onboarding, right? Like, so you have this influencer who is a delegate in, you know, compound or something like that. Right. And, you know, they've been working, you know, closely to like make sure compound is really good and, you know, does all this stuff. Right. And they're talking about it. And then someone comes across this person on Twitter and sees them talking about compound. And they're like, Oh, compound looks cool. How do I use it? And they turn up to compound and they're like, Oh, MetaMask, this, that, whatever. Meanwhile, there's someone else who's shilling Celsius. Right. And the person turns up and they're like, username, password, take all my money. Thanks very much. I'm done. Right. Um, it's just hard to compete with that. Um, but if we can get to a point where we close that gap, right, then, you know, maybe we can shift some of those new users as they come into decentralized services. Um, but it has to be easy. And this, again, like this has been a thing we've been talking about for five years in the Ethereum ecosystem that like onboarding is really tough, wallet UX, you know, account abstraction, like this is a thing. But I think we're finally at a point where we've solved the underlying issue, right? Like if you go and solve account abstraction and onboarding and everything and, and do that first, and then people turn up and it's a ghost town, well, you're not going to keep them, right? But we've actually, we've got a, a bustling city that we built on these L2s that are actually working that's fast and useful and it has all these cool features. We just need a way to get them there as, as efficiently as possible. Mm. Interesting. And so actually like in a way, some of the um, some of the mechanisms for getting people there could be governance token um, leveraging governance tokens in some way, where you actually have people who are like large holders of governance tokens, sort of bringing people in 
and being 100%. like a, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Because users are not going to govern, you know, the average user is probably not going to govern the protocol, right? Um, yeah. That said, why why does the average user turn up to crypto in a bull market? Because they want exposure to things that will go up. Like it's mm -hmm. speculation, realistically, right? Like that's what drives the majority of attention. And then eventually some people are like, oh, wow, this is really cool. I'm going to stay, right? And it's not just speculation. Um, but I think that that is, has the potential to be quite a powerful thing. And I think it worked in, you know, DeFi Summer where there were new users who were coming, not from outside of crypto, but from like within the crypto sphere, maybe they were like into Ripple weirdly or like whatever, <laughs> right? And like, they were like, oh wow, like this thing actually works. And then they start buying, you know, uh, tokens in, in you know, Compound or, um, you know, some other project, right? Or Maker or whatever. And like, they get really bought in and they're like, no, okay, this is my ecosystem now. I do think we converted some people who were, you know, just, crypto speculators into like, holy shit, this thing works. And it's working over here in the Ethereum because this is, this is the deal. Um, so I think that that can work for a subset of users um, that, you know, they, they can get exposure to things that they're actually using. And this works for exchanges, right? Like FTT. There are a lot of people that were using FTX because they had the token. They bought the token because they believed in it or BNB or whatever. You know, they're using fucking Binance Smart Chain because they hold BNB. <laughs> Right. Um, you know, that there couldn't really be much of a hit. You know, I shouldn't say that. I, I used to say that all the time. There was a reason why people were using Binance Smart Chain because low fees. And because low fees, you know, was a big deal because high fees on Ethereum, you know, it was too expensive to use Ethereum at the time. And they wanted to use something that had smart contracts that allowed them to do all this stuff. And they went to Binance Smart Chain because it was super cheap. Now, the trade off is that it's totally centralized, right? But they don't care about that, right? And so, but again, that was an unsolved problem. We've solved that problem. This cycle, we solved it. You don't need to go to BSC because we have Polygon and we have, you know, like other, um, you know, we've got like CK stuff coming out and we've got layer twos like Arbitrum and Optimism. Like we've got an ecosystem that will allow us, you know, especially with 4844, hopefully we'll get your know, fees down even lower. You won't need to go to BSC because the delta between, you know, the zero cent, BSC fee and a one cent optimism fee is just not enough to move the dial for the average person. They're just going to go and use the place that's better, that you know, that is has more interesting novel stuff and not a bunch of clone projects. Mm, yeah. Um, before we wrap up, you mentioned like the assumption around, you know, if we make UX better, we've actually built enough where people will come. I'm curious what other assumptions or hypotheses are you building right now that are not validated, but that feel potentially true? Um, I think one of them is sort of a sub assumption, right? Which is that it's okay to make some centralization trade-offs, right? In onboarding. Because we're already making centralization trade-offs in our like L2s, for example, right? Like we've got, you know, uh, centralized sequencers. We're working on that. It's a problem we're trying to, you know, we're trying to fix, right? There have, there have always been elements of centralization in the Ethereum ecosystem. Let's ignore crypto as a whole, right? And just talk about Ethereum. There have always been elements of centralization and there has always been a push and a drive to remove those over time, right? And, you know, to improve uh, decentralization over time. And I think that we've stayed committed to that, both as individual projects and as a wider community, and we've done a really good job of it. Um, but I think that for some reason or in like some aspects of things we're really scared to like introduce any aspect of centralization, right? And I mean, I'll give a good example from, from the history of synthetics, right? Um, we were probably one of the first big projects to not just have proxy contracts there and pretend like they were there, but to actually come out and say, we have proxy contracts and here's why we're using them and this is why we think it's a good idea. Right. Because we have no fucking idea what we're doing. And if we build this <laughs> immutably, it would like work for two weeks and then we'd have to shut it down. Right. So we need proxy contracts because we're still trying to figure out what this thing does. And so we built them and oh my God, if you like go on Reddit and like dredge up those old threads about proxy contracts, like, you know, Haven's the biggest scam in history. They can change the contracts on you and do all this stuff. And eventually we built this very robust infrastructure to manage those proxy contracts. You know, like we built a governance infrastructure and, and, you know, a whole bunch of things. And, and we did fix that problem. But I think that there is hesitancy to centralize certain things, right, that haven't been centralized before. 
And, mm. you know, luckily I don't have much hesitancy to do things if I think it's a good idea. And so, you know, my thesis is that if we centralize some of the onboarding processes and, and you know, make them much easier by having trade-offs, that those trade-offs will be worth it and we can eventually remove those trade-offs. But let's not, you know, be like decentralization maximalist in the most important place that we need to be, which is the user funnel, right? Like let's build a good funnel and then figure out how to decentralize it, not let's build a decentralized funnel that is a piece of shit. And so mm. that for me is like, you know, that's the sub thesis of like, let's onboard people and I'm willing to make the trade-offs, um, you know, that are needed to get there. Interesting. So really like the, the piece of also tangible advice there would basically be over index on centralization where necessary or lean towards it and then trust that you can decentralize things later so long as like companies, for example, aren't building moats on the centralized sort of process, which obviously then disincentivizes decentralization. But like very tactically speaking, there's actually something there around pushing for more centralization um, and over indexing on it and then just trusting later that that will so be fixed. I think this is I, that's. I, Yes, like fundamentally, yes, right? And I think that this is the problem. There are two types of people who will centralize things, right? There's the type of person who wants to steal your money, right? right. And then there's the type of person who wants to make the best product with the tools they have at the time, right? Right. And you can't know the difference between the two of them, right? Now, if you know in yourself as a builder, that you're doing this for the right reasons with the intent of decentralizing it over time, and you're willing to take the pain of people saying you're gonna steal my money, right? Um, then you can do that and it can be quite effective. And this is like one of the things that, that Synthetics did, right? People are like, you will never decentralize governments, you're a monster, you're just a <laughs> dictator and you know, whatever, right? Like, and and like there's no argument against that because it is centralized, right? Like we've centralized right. governance right now. So there's no way for me to like point to the future and be like, no, no, I really will do this. I will give up power. Right. Um, and, but now I'd be like, you know, you look back in hindsight and I did, I gave up, you know, in some cases, maybe too much power. Right. Um, but I, but I did the thing. And again, I think this is where like, you have to have conviction that you genuinely are going to do this, right? And that you are seriously committed to it. And it's so easy to lose sight of it. There were so many times where even the community was like, don't do this, this is gonna be such a pain in the ass. Like don't do SIPs, right? Like, come on, like, let's just vote in Discord, right? And you're like, no, like, we, this is the thing, we committed to it, we gotta do this thing, we gotta keep decentralizing. Um, and really it requires like a hard push to continue to decentralize because processes ossify really quickly and people are like, nope, this is the way we do it and I like doing it this way and you're making it harder and you're bad, right? It's like, wait a second, like we like all agreed we're gonna decentralize it, we have to do this, right? Um, and so I think that as a builder, if you're sitting here right now and you're like, I could build something that's 10X better, but I don't have the tools to do the 10X better thing in a decentralized way now, but if I build it, I can backfill decentralization later and, and fix it go and fucking do that. Like go and do that and just have the conviction that you will do it and then actually do it and decentralize it. And you will have a thing that is so much more useful, um, you know, later through that process than if you, you know, have this hard line, no, it has to be decentralized now. And then, and you know, the trade-off here is that some people will not want to engage with that. And that's good, right? Like we don't want people to engage with centralized things where they can have their money stolen. But there will be a certain class of people that either will believe you for whatever reason and believe that you are on that path, right? And will have the conviction to go and use the thing or that are DGENs that don't care, right? And they're like, yeah, steal my money, I don't care, right? Everyone's stealing my money, what's the big deal, right? And then when <laughs> you don't, they're gonna be like, oh, wow, that's cool. I was really expecting you were gonna steal my money and you didn't. Okay, like, what are we doing now, right? Like, and so, you know, I think that there will be people who will still be willing to engage with you, but there will be a lot of people that will say, like, this is bad. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. You're a monster. And you just have to have the conviction that you're working towards not being a monster, I guess. Yeah, did you ever, last question before we wrap, did you ever have a moment where you were like, 
I I am I'm not going to do this. Like this is so much more work than it's worth. We might as well just keep down our path. Um you know what? I think the thing for me that was kind of my north star when it came to decentralization is I knew that we were doing stuff that was going to be problematic from a regulatory perspective, right? Like mm. eventually if it worked regulators were going to have some questions about this because it doesn't fit into an easy regulatory box, right? It's so novel that you can't just be like, oh, well, this rule obviously applies to it, right? There is really no rule that specifically applies to what synthetics is doing. And so I was like, when we get to that point, when we build something that is sufficiently good enough that regulators care enough to try and regulate it and figure out what this thing is, I do not want to be the person that is in control of this thing when that happens. Mm. Right. And so I was just like, I don't like, it's not worth it to me. Right. Like it's not yeah. worth it to me to maintain this grip on power. Right. Um, and so I, but at the same time, I was very concerned that if we just handed over governance without any thought to how it was going to work, that it would not work and we wouldn't be able to get there. So, it, you know, there's a tension there, right? It's like, well, I kind of see a path here, but I need to be able to put in place a process to allow us to get there where I can still have input in the system without being in control of it. And that, you know, there's this marketplace of ideas and I can be one of the participants that I can, you know, agitate for what I think is right. And, and you know, a lot of times what I thought was right was wrong. And, the, and mm -hmm. you know, the, the community chose something else and I'm glad they did, right? Um, but really for me, it was like, I do not want any one person, whether it's me or my successor or whatever, to be in control of this thing when it works. No one has to be in control of this when it works. When it works, we don't want anyone in control. We want to be able to just look around the room and be like, I don't know who's doing this thing, right? It's doing <laughs> itself. And that's where we're at now. Like no one is in control of synthetics at this point. It just does its own thing and it's kind of self-organizing and it has the right incentives to get humans to keep working on it. But it is its own thing. It's its own entity that will keep going regardless of me or anyone else. That does feel like a silver lining of all of the regulatory ambiguity of just like, it's kind of forcing everyone's hand in terms of decentralization. In principle, yeah, but like some people are still not getting it, right? Like, yes. It's like, take, like, read the room, people. Like, <laughs> you really need to do this. Like, this is not a joke anymore. Like, you need to decentralize. Like, and I've been saying this for a long time. Right? Like, I remember getting up on stage. Um, I think it was like mainnet. It was the mainnet where um, Dopon got subpoenaed. And I was like, guys, like we don't get to have entities anymore. I know you were like kind of feeling like you got, you know, maybe an entity in like the Seychelles was going to be okay. <laughs> I was like, no more entities. You don't get to have a Swiss foundation. Like this, the game of having an entity that runs your project is over. And people were like, you're insane. And I was like, no, like, like, look, like, look at what, like, you can see the trajectory this is going, right? And now we look back on them and we're like, oh, wow. Now, of course, there's other, you know, there's people who still have entities who are somehow not in jail, right? And they're obviously doing something, right? Um, but I think for the majority of projects, like, you know, having entities just puts a target on your back, right? And so, you know, we don't have entities. Synthetics doesn't have an entity. It has a set of contracts on mainnet and on, you know, optimism that does stuff. The end. Hopefully that becomes the case for a lot more projects over the next couple of years. Let's hope so. Let's hope happening. so. We'll see what Gary Gensler decides is is acceptable, or I, maybe someone yeah. else. But that's a whole other story. Um, yeah. Kane, this was so wonderful. I so appreciate you sharing um, a bunch of different things, just in terms of building in in a bear market and dealing with all of the craziness. Where can people learn more about synthetics? I know V three is is sort of a big thing within the ecosystem and yeah, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, I think um, someone's going to be upset with me for not talking about V3 enough here. But um, anyway, I'm sure you still can find it, out. V, still V3. It <laughs> no, no, I, like it's funny because like even even yesterday I was like, I was like, you know, the way that I talk about V3 versus the way that like the marketing people talk about V3. I'm like, look, <laughs> it's just the same thing, but better. And they're like, you can't say that. Like, that's not like, and I'm like, but it's the truth. Like, you know, we built a bunch of contracts that had a bunch of nonsense code that didn't do anything. And we've taken it all out and like looked at like how it works and made it better. Um, and it does some cooler stuff that we couldn't do with the old contracts, like permissionless markets, whatever. Uh, but, you know, fundamentally, it's like take five years of 
writing the wrong thing and, and, you know, eventually getting to the right thing and just like put it back together properly. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, I think like synthetics discord is probably the best place. It's the best place to talk about stuff. If you're curious, there are, there's always someone in there who's willing to answer your questions. Um, and then, yeah, you can just follow me on Twitter if you're brave enough. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is so wonderful. 